0: Um, i got a story that I'll get us going here as we shift gears a little bit. A man wanders into a small antique shop in Chicago. Mostly it's cluttered with knick-knacks and junk on the floor. However, he notices what looks like an ancient Chinese vase. On closer inspection, it turns out to be a priceless relic from the Ming dynasty whose value is beyond calculating. It is worth everything else in the store put together. The owner clearly has no idea about the value of this possession because it's filled with milk and the cat is drinking out of it. The man sees an opportunity for the deal of a lifetime. He cleverly strategizes a method to obtain the vase for a fraction of its worth. That's an extraordinary cat you, you have, he says to the owner. How much you, would you sell her for? Oh, the cat's not really for sale, said the owner. She keeps the store free of mice. But the man countered, I really must have her. Tell, tell you what, I'll, I'll give you a $100 for her. Oh, she's not really worth it, laughed the owner. But if you want her that badly, she's yours. I need something to feed her from as well, continued the man. Let me throw in another $10 for the saucer she's drinking out of. And the owner replied, oh, I could never do that. That saucer is actually an ancient Chinese vase from the Ming Dynasty. It's my prized possession whose worth is beyond calculation. Funny thing, though, since we've had it, I've sold 17 cans. I love it when I, t- and you laugh more than I think you will. It always makes me I tell this story to get us thinking about value beyond calculation. It's going to be important this morning as we engage in the gospel, value beyond calculation, extravagance, excessiveness. Uh, And I also want to think about true wisdom around what is valuable. That'll be another piece of the gospel story that we're going to enter in this morning. Let me give you a reminder, or if you're newer to cross you, uh, let me give you a reminder. Um, our tech team's been at work, too. Do you notice that it's even clearer up there than it's been? Our tech team's been working hard on a lot of things. Uh, but we've been walking through the church calendar. There's a couple reasons why we're doing this. It's a year with Jesus. What we want to do is we want to keep Jesus central in everything. That's why we sing, you're worthy of all. We want to keep Jesus central in everything that we do. And that even means how we think about time, how we arrange our time, even on a calendar year. How do we think about time? We arrange it around Jesus. Not around what time it is to consume this or buy that. No, around Jesus. And I've been trying to offer up to you that the church calendar, which has been around for well over a thousand years, is a discipleship tool meant to serve us. Now, we won't always do what we're doing this year. This year is a unique year where we're going through the calendar, and I'm preaching the gospel text that goes with the Book of Common Prayer because it's all organized together in that way. But what I've been trying to remind you of or help you get into is if, if you embrace the church calendar, we'll probably reference it, but we won't be this direct in years to come. But if you choose to add this as part of your discipleship training, some of the ways that you follow Jesus, connect with Jesus, you will begin to learn. That this is the sequence of how following Jesus flows. That you will enter a time, we call it Advent, in the church calendar. It's waiting on God. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, but in your own mind, I'm waiting on God right now. In this area of my life, in this area in the world, I'm I'm waiting on God. Where are you, God? Are you going to do anything? Where are you, God? That's Advent. But if you practice the church calendar every year, what you begin to learn, you just know, you don't have to think it, Advent always leads to Christmas. Which means you're waiting on God, but God will always come. He always comes. He'll surprise you. He'll come in amazing ways as a baby. But he'll come, and he'll bring salvation, and he'll bring deliverance. God will always come. Christmas always follows Advent. And it leads into Epiphany, where God reveals himself to us, reveals his character, reveals his heart, reveals what he's up to in the world. And it begins Epiphany. It's amazing. It's exciting. The baptism of Jesus, all this great stuff. But Epiphany always then leads to Lent which is the season we're in right now, you will be in awe of Jesus. I'm, we just heard about Sammy. I'm sure Sammy was in awe of Jesus' epiphany. But as you begin to follow Jesus, you learn that Jesus went to the cross, and you have to learn to carry your cross too. That Jesus' ministry was culminated in his death on the cross, and he calls us to follow him there. And so epiphany, we re- re- Jesus is revealed, it's amazing, but we quickly learn that we have to die to our old self. And that feels heavy and hard. Jesus calls it a narrow road. But if you practice the church calendar, what do you learn? Epiphany, I'm learning about God. Oh, it's harder than I ever imagined. But then Easter and resurrection. We'll get to Easter in a couple weeks, right? But that's, that's what we learn as we practice the church calendar. I hope you're taking this in. Now, our text this morning is John chapter 12. Oh, this is a good text. I think you'll like this. This is a really good text. Now we're just going to pick up in John chapter 12, verse 1. We'll, we'll, we'll come at the context from a variety of angles as we go through this morning. But John writes, six days before the Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany. We'll talk a little bit about that. The, the home of Lazarus. Who's Lazarus? He's the man he had raised from the dead. That's John chapter 11. If you aren't familiar with that story, you should read it later today. I'll reference it a little bit more later. A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor, uh, hosted primarily by Lazarus and his sisters. Why why not? I mean, the whole town probably, they they like Lazarus. He was a good guy, and he was dead, and they were sad, and Jesus brought him back from the grave. And so they have this dinner to honor Jesus. It makes sense. Martha served. We'll get into this. I think this was a wealthy family that had servants. But Martha's way of showing her honor and love to Jesus was, no, no, I'll serve you. I'll take care of the meal. Let me me handle everything. If you are familiar with the Gospel of Luke, this maps with what we know of Martha. Kind of, I don't know, it's kind of funny. Lazarus is just sitting at the table. (laughs) Lazarus is like this passive character who's always acted upon as you read about him. But he's sitting with Jesus. That's what he's doing. And then you've got Mary who will... The the word that came up again and again as I was reading other authors is unconventional. Mary is unconventional. And she took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from the essence of nard or spike nard. It comes from India, maybe the Himalayas. Very expensive. And she anointed Jesus' feet. And she was wiping his feet with her hair. And the house, the whole house, was filled with the aroma. Quite a, quite a contrast, if you're reading through the Gospel of John, we just saw Lazarus' grave was filled with a nasty aroma. It stunk. But now, now there's this beautiful aroma that's filling the room. A few things about this, expensive, we're going to see in a few verses, but I want to tell you this now. In a few verses, we're going to find out that this perfume is worth a year's wage for a daily worker. A year's wage, 300 denarii, a year's wage. And I was kind of reading, what does that look like? One of the older books that I read, not that old, but a little bit older, said that would maybe compute out to $12,000 for this bottle of perfume. But somebody I was listening to much more recently said $30,000. So let's just call it even $21,000. We'll get right in the middle. This is a $21,000 bottle of perfume. And Mary pours out the whole thing. Just let that sit with you for a second. Now, again, some people, we don't really know. Some people think, well, maybe this was a fair family heirloom which would be incredible in and of itself. I do think this actually was a wealthy family, which I think is good to know. I'm not going to talk about this this morning, but when you you read through the Gospels and really listen to the heart of Jesus as he's trying to lead us into eternal life, I I think Jesus often says that maybe, maybe the greatest hindrance to our entrance into the kingdom is economic self-love. (laughs) self-interest. And so, so we know that wealth can be a real challenge to entering into the kingdom, but Jesus also says, with man, it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. So Jesus hangs out with a variety of people. I think this is a very wealthy family. It's one of his closest friends, but we'll see that they are not enamored with their wealth. I mean, even this act by Mary to pour out this $21,000 bottle of perfume shows you where their true love, their true devotion lies. I think that's what keeps this family healthy in the midst of all the temptations that come with wealth. And then we get a different kind of side to the story here. Verse 4, and we'll talk a little bit about this, but I wonder what our response would be if John went straight from verse 3 to verse 5. He throws in verse 4, and it kind of helps us out with verse 4, because it sets us up to not be so in shock. But verse 4 says, Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, so we already know we aren't going to like what he says, right? But if we didn't know that, we might like a lot of what he says. That perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold, and the money given to the poor. Now, John cares deeply about the poor. Know that. This is what happened, and John is using it to illustrate our devotion of Jesus. But he wants to be clear that Judas, when he says this, his motivations are way off. What does John tell us? Not that he cared for the poor. Judas was a thief, and since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. Judas, what a missed opportunity. What I could have done with $21,000. And then here's kind of the way this all comes together. Again, we sit under the authority of Jesus. This is what Jesus says. Mary's very unconventional. I didn't say this even, because sometimes it's hard. It's hard to get into other cultures for me if I, if I don't get to experience it, just to read about different cultures, different times. But, but even for Mary to let her hair down, that was very unconventional. That would have drawn the attention. What is she doing? And then to use her... For her hair to wipe his feet. I mean, so much going on, so much question, all this stuff stirring, and Jesus says, leave her alone. Leave Mary alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. You will always have the poor among you, and that matters. I mean, Jesus says a lot about caring for the poor, but, and this is, this is incredible, <laughs> Jesus says, you will not always have me. Again, why do we devote ourselves to Jesus, sing to Jesus, make time for Jesus, do extravagant acts of worship for Jesus? Because he's God in human flesh. (laughs) Because he alone is worthy of our praise. And Jesus understands that he receives the worship of Mary. It's appropriate. It's right. It's the way this works. Pretty powerful story. And they're actually, I mean, I, I really enjoy, there's a lot we could talk about. There's three things that really caught my attention. I'll be a little quicker this morning. But the first thing I want to invite you into is the tension that you would have been feeling if you were at this dinner prepared for Jesus. As you read through the Gospel of John, and each of these Gospel writers, I, I would love for you to gain an appreciation for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and what they're doing as they tell the story of Jesus because they each have something in mind that they want to accomplish. And so they tell the story in slightly different ways. It's all true, but they highlight different details or arrange things in slightly different ways just because they're trying to access different parts of how we understand Jesus, God, and human flesh. And John's gospel is unique with the telling of the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. But as you read through John's gospel, it is really the raising of Lazarus that drives things to Good Friday. If you have your Bible open, we don't have a slide for this, but if you can read the very the very last verse in chapter 11. Meanwhile, the leading priests and Pharisees had publicly ordered that anyone seeing Jesus must report it immediately so they could arrest him. That's how John chapter 11 ends and then goes right into John chapter 12. So, think about this. Bethany is two miles from Jerusalem. Fastened, two miles away. And Jesus is now a wanted man. So they are having this party, it's probably well known. People would have recognized Jesus. They've heard about this man. He's in town. I'm sure they know he's there. And they're harboring a wanted man in their house. They're celebrating a wanted man. They would have been expected to report to the authorities we've got him here. You can imagine the tension and all the different things that might be swirling in people's minds as there's growing excitement about what Jesus might do as the coming Messiah and the anticipation. Is he going he to head into Jerusalem? Are they going to find out he's here? What's gonna, is, this, is this where everything's going to turn? There's all kinds of tension, some excitement, some fear. What's going on? And you and I are invited into the story. And even as I was entering into the story and, and, and saw this interchange and a little bit of Judas's negativity here, I, I began thinking, and I, I don't know if you can relate, but when external circumstances make life difficult, I like to have unity inside my home. Do you? I do, and I know things are going to be troubling. I like to know that at least the people closest to me are united and we're of one accord and we're working through things and we're patient with one another. I think part of the tragedy of this little scene is that Jesus badly needs and wants his followers to be united at this moment. The rest of the world is plotting against him. His friends might at least have the decency to stick together and back him up. But no, they like to poke. In fact, we hear Judas' voice here, but if you read the parallel accounts in Matthew and Mark, you will know that several other disciples are thinking the same kind of thoughts, the same ungenerous thoughts, the same divisive thoughts. Judas is just the one who voices it negatively. He's that guy. He's this guy. I read this story this week. A farmer had a neighbor, a constant complainer, a wet blanket in the linen closet of life. The farmer decided to impress this man for once in his existence, and so he bought the world's greatest hunting dog, trained it thoroughly, and invited his joyless friend to go hunting with him. He showed the neighbor how his dog could stand motionless for an hour and pick up a scent a mile away. No response. From the blind, the farmer shot a duck, which landed in the middle of the pond. Upon command, the dog trotted out, walked on the surface of the water, retrieved the bird, and dropped him at the feet of his master. What do you think of that? The farmer challenged his joyless neighbor, to which his friend responded, Your dog can't swim, can he? (laughs) But that's Judas here, right? That's Judas here. He's the wet blanket. Jesus wants unity. There's a lot of tension. There's a lot happening in the next seven days. Judas is just going to poke. I was intrigued by this, and, you know, we have a lot of saints who have gone before us, and this caught my attention. St. Augustine, some of you will know that name, St. Augustine wondered about Judas's disruptive presence here in the midst of this happy occasion and, indeed, throughout Jesus' whole ministry. This is what Augustine said. What, le- what lesson, then, my brothers and sisters, did our Lord Jesus Christ wish to impress on his church when it pleased him to have one castaway among the twelve. What lesson but this, that we should bear with the wicked and refrain from dividing the body of Christ. Jesus knows Judas to be a thief, yet Jesus did not betray him. Rather, Jesus endured him and thus showed us an example of patience in tolerating the wicked in the church. Now, I thought about that, and I'm not exactly sure, honestly, right now, I'm not exactly sure what the implications of that might be for a local congregation. I think we'd have to have broader conversations around that. But as I I read that from Augustine, I was thinking about this more on a national or global level. In the past few years, there have been actually more than I would like to count of prominent leaders in the church who have betrayed some wicked lives as they've led the church. And I know for many, it seems most of all the younger generation, have been questions of, Jesus, how could you let this happen? (laughs) And this is where I I like to think about maturity in Christ as being able to hold lots of tensions together. And on one level, I want to say, yeah, we should be surprised. We should be surprised when people who are following Jesus betray this hidden life that we might say is wicked. But we also shouldn't be surprised. Like, that's the tension you have to hold. I mean, Jesus even taught about how the wheat and the weeds would grow together. You see this with Judas. Jesus patiently endures. I I don't know if that helps you think through some of what we've seen on a larger scale, but I think it helps me a little. I want to give a little bit of perspective on the poor, because verse 8 is an astonishing statement. You'll always have the poor among you, but you won't always have me. It's an astonishing, astonishing statement because, because Jesus so often talks about the importance of the poor and the kingdom blessings that would come upon them. And perhaps the only explanation is that Jesus believed that his coming death would be the action through which the world as a whole, including the world of poverty and all that went with it, would be put to rights. That the best thing that could happen for the poor is for Jesus to be anointed for his burial and go to the cross for the world to be made right. But I also came across this story. I've actually read this story a few times and wondered where it would pop up in a sermon. This comes from the, there's a couple of saints this morning. Don't always talk about saints, but this is from the life of St. Lawrence. Lawrence was the senior deacon in the church of Rome in the middle of the thir- third century. He was in charge of the holy things, the liturgical objects such as the chalices and candlesticks, but also the treasury The prefect of the city had heard that Christian priests offered sacrifices in vessels of gold and silver cups, and he asked Lawrence to place before him the wealth of the church. According to church history, Lawrence replied, Our church is rich, I deny it not. Much wealth and gold it has, no one in the world has more. Accordingly, Lawrence promised to bring forth all the precious possessions of Christ if the prefect would give him three days to gather the church's wealth, The prefect gave Lawrence the three days, and Lawrence used that time to gather the sick and the poor. The people he collected included a man with two eyeless sockets, a cripple with a broken knee, a one-legged man, a person with one leg shorter than the other, and others with grave infirmities. He writes down their names and lines them up at the entrance of the church. And only then does he seek out the prefect to bring him to the church. And when the prefect enters the doors of the church, Lawrence points to the ragged company and says, There are the church's riches. <laughs> Take them. Now the prefect, who had other ideas in mind, was enraged. And he ordered that Lawrence be executed in, a, in not, a, not a quick fashion. And she's burned, actually. That's the story. And one of the authors reading this alongside John 12 that I was reading this week says this, Lawrence exemplifies what it means for the church to always have the poor with us. It is not the church's task to make the poor rich. Of course, rich and poor Christians alike are called to serve one another, which means that the hungry are to be fed and the naked are to be clothed. But the church is the church of the poor, drawing from the riches discovered by people who must learn to care for one another because such care is the richness produced by following Jesus. Or I would even say it this way, if we are going to be a people who maintain, who sustain a lifestyle, a lifetime of serving our neighbor Loving those in need, loving those who may be difficult to love, loving those who may not love us in return. You need to begin and end with a life of worship, extravagant worship of Jesus. It's the worship of Jesus that sustains our love for our neighbor and our care for the poor. And I think that's ultimately where Mary's example points us. There's a few things here that we can glean from what Mary is doing from this powerful story. If you are into reading all the Gospels, you will see that there's four accounts of a woman anointing Jesus. The Lucan account is clearly a different setting and a different story. But Matthew, Mark, and John are, I think, the same story. Now, they're told in different ways, and there's a few places where the details don't align perfectly And at first reading, you're like, wait, is this the same story? But if you stop to think about it, it it totally makes sense. And Matthew and Mark's telling of the story where they are very intent. Read Matthew's gospel. Matthew is very intent on helping us see that on the cross, Jesus is enthroned king. That the the crown of thorns is the crown that Jesus will bear. It's king of kings and lord of lords. It's king of all. And so they're telling the story very much to help us see that Jesus is becoming king on the cross, in a sense. And so if you read Matthew and Mark, Mary breaks open this whole bottle of perfume, but Matthew and Mark only talk about Mary anointing the head of Jesus, because they're highlighting he is being anointed as King. And this shouldn't surprise us, I've tried to help us see this, one of the radical things that Jesus does in his ministry on earth as he's bringing the kingdom, Is he, he, he does the things that were only okay to do in the temple, he does them around the table, <laughs> right? No, you, you've sinned, you need to offer a sacrifice at the temple, you need to go receive forgiveness at the temple, Jesus is like, I can do it right here. I've shared this before, but I love this. It'd be like it'd be like you're, you're, you realize your driver's license needs to be renewed, and, I, and I'd be like, "Oh, I can take care of that." And you would hear that as good news. I don't have to go to the DMV. Yeah, I can take it. No, that's what Jesus is doing. You don't have to go to the temple for forgiveness of sins. You can do that right here. Jesus says, "I have the authority to do that." And so Jesus was moving the temple around the table around him. He is. He, he would say, "His body is the temple. Destroy it, and in three days he'll raise it up again." And so Jesus is, again, and I think this is one of the things that's happening here, is instead of going to the temple where a priest would anoint Jesus as king, Mary anoints Jesus as king around the table, which tells us what Jesus thinks of Mary. It's a beautiful picture. Well, that's kind of what we see from Matthew and Mark, but John doesn't talk about anointing the head of Jesus, does it? And we're in the Gospel of John this morning. John says, well, Mary anoints his feet. And Jesus says, it's for my burial in the Gospel of John. And and I think, again, this is part of the theme. If Mary's breaking open a whole bottle, why couldn't she anoint his head and his feet, right? But Matthew and Mark highlight one. John highlights the other. John highlights the path of humility. And John is going to go from chapter 12 into chapter 13, where Jesus is going to say to all his disciples, wash one another's feet. And again, we don't know. We don't know. We have no idea what Mary is thinking. But it's possible. I'll just submit this. It's possible it's possible that Mary is the first disciple to understand Jesus has to die and accept it. In fact, I would argue that is the great difference between Mary and Judas. You try to get into the head of Judas. What makes the most sense of what's going on with Judas is Judas is finally understanding that Jesus is going to die. And he's like, I'll have none of that. That's not what I signed up for. We've talked about this with, with, with Peter before. I didn't sign up to lose. I signed up to win. If you're really going to Jerusalem to die, I'm out of this. I'll be the one who sells you out. I don't care. I'm done with this. Mary. Mary may be the first disciple who understands for Jesus to do what he needs to do, he has to go to the cross. That's a key part of discipleship for all of us. You and I have to understand that for Jesus to save us, he had to go to the cross so that he could overwhelm death with his life, so that he could put an end to Satan and to sin. So that he could fully bring the kingdom. Again, this is, these are two possibilities of what's going on with Mary. We don't really know. Maybe you're not convinced. That's fine. So I'm happy to say most simply that if nothing else, Mary's devotion and worship of Jesus echoes far beyond what she understands. This is very common in the Gospels, again and again and again. People will say things or do things that mean far more than they understand. And we on this side of the resurrection then have eyes to see. In Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, I love it, Jesus says wherever the Gospel is preached, the story of Mary will be told. We still talk about it today. That what she did was far more memorable than anything she could have said. So again, try to imagine this story. Try to imagine this story without Jesus. A $21,000 bottle just wasted in a moment. If you and I ever eat together, you will find out I'm a fast eater. My mom always says to me, Don't you want to slow down and enjoy your food? If a little moment of that, Mary, don't you want to slow down and enjoy this perfume? Why waste it all right now? $21,000? What are you thinking? Mary breaks open this jar, a year's wages, and Jesus says, it's not a waste. Jesus sees it as extravagant, unqualified devotion. Sometimes worship is not pragmatic. Sometimes worship is a wasteful extravagance. And if we will waste ourselves in the extravagance of worship that cannot be justified on any pragmatic level, it will lead to all kinds of beauty in the world. Jesus doesn't call what Mary did wrong, wasteful, or a mistake. He receives it as an appropriate act of extravagant worship. In many ways, we have not appreciated the gift of life and love that God gives us until we take the best of that and give it back to God in prayer and worship. We return the best part of what God gives us back to Him because of Jesus. This doesn't make sense without Jesus, but we're so deeply fascinated by Jesus that sometimes we waste time. What what looks like a waste of time, what looks like a waste of talent, what looks like a waste of money, we do this in extravagant acts of worship because Jesus is worthy and it's good for our soul and Jesus receives it. We want to be a people that do things and tell stories and have relationships that don't make sense apart from Jesus. Maybe someone in the church will pull you aside, what are you thinking? And you say, I don't know, but I saw Jesus in their eyes and I had to do it. I don't know, but I heard the voice of Jesus just echoing this gentle whisper. And I I had to act, I had to say yes to Jesus, he's my king. And we said, oh, okay, it makes sense. Without Jesus, that makes no. But with Jesus, that makes perfect sense. You know, I was, I shared this with with most of you. I was at a marriage conference. Kami and I led a marriage conference, which was really funny to me. (laughs) We led a marriage conference a few weeks ago, and my closing remarks, my closing remarks were, just make sure Jesus is at the center. Make sure Jesus is at the center of your marriage. Make sure Jesus is at the center of your family. What what we were doing over a period of of a, a day and a half was, Kami and I were sharing tools that have been really helpful that we wished we had when we began our marriage journey. And we look back, and honestly, the first 10 years, we didn't have a lot of tools. And I look back, and I'm like, how did we get through all that? And then Kami and I would both say, Jesus. I don't know. We lacked tools. We lacked a lot. But we had Jesus, and somehow Jesus gave us everything we need. We are imperfect. Our marriage is imperfect. Our family is imperfect. You say, come on, Jeff. I say, Friday night, guess what? Kamy, Jay, and Jeff, all three knit, we apologized to each other. <laughs> and Saturday morning, we woke up and apologized again. We had a rough night Friday. We are an imperfect family. But I think we're a healthy family because we've learned to keep Jesus at the center. And actually, I, I think it's okay to share this. I had, I had a Kairos moment. We're talking about Kairos moments in our discipleship pathway formed. If you don't know what they are, you want to learn, you want to practice, this Wednesday, we talking about Kairos moments. You can come. 6.30 right in here. Uh, we have, I, I talk about negative Kairos moments where we learn, and, and sometimes we have positive I had a positive Kairos moment this week. My friend called me up. I hadn't talked to him for a while. He was asking about our family and how, how I was doing, how Kami was doing, how our marriage was doing. And I, I began to ask, I mean, he asked me about Kami, and I began to answer his question, but I didn't really talk about Kami. I talked about Jesus. As I talked about our family, I talked about Jesus, and, and a little bit later I saw Kami. and I was like, you know, I talked to this person today, and they asked how our family was doing, and I, I ended up talking about Jesus, and for me it was a positive Kairos moment. I said, Kami, I can't talk about our family without talking about Jesus. I don't have some side agenda. It's just true. Jesus is the center. We're imperfect. We're a mess. But Jesus is awesome. And again, that is my heart for our church, for Crossview. I want us to be a community that we have all kinds of stories that just don't make sense. It just seems wasteful or extravagant, but then you say the name Jesus. all oh, makes sense. I can't tell you about this relationship I have unless I tell you about Jesus. With no hidden agenda. It's just Jesus is so central. It's the only way I can describe it if you're going to understand. That's what this story is. $21,000 in a minute gone. What? It makes sense because it's Jesus. God in human flesh, the creator of all, has entered into our midst. And that is who we worship. Amen? Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, that's, oh, we love you. You are awesome. And we confess, actually we confess, I hope we can confess this morning that we are not good people. We like to say frequently around here that the line between good and evil runs through every single human heart, even ours. And maybe this morning we can confess that if we were not enamored with you, if we were not enamored, fascinated, committed to imitating you, we would never be the kind of people who care about anyone else. I honestly think that's true for me. I don't know how much I would care about anyone other than me if I didn't know the love of Jesus. Now, Jesus, it's our encounter with you, spending time with you, encountering your living presence. You are alive. And you're here today. You are our honored guest. And we want to, I won't say it this way every Sunday, but I'm going to say it this way this Sunday. Jesus, we want to waste our lives on you. We want to be so taken by you that we may even appear foolish or ridiculous. We may look wasteful and extravagant. We want to waste our lives on you knowing it's the only thing that's never really a waste. Amen.